Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel as we continue on with our series of roundtable discussions with the fixed income team here at the UBS Chief Investment Office. The team is joining us for a timely discussion around drivers behind recent asset class trends and performance, positioning guidance, as well as near-term outlooks. Uh, Joining us for the conversation, glad to welcome Frank Saleo, Barry McAlinden, Alina Galan, Senior Fixed Income Strategist for UBS. CIO, as well as Kathleen McNamara, Senior Municipal Strategist for the Americas. Moderating today's roundtable, glad to welcome Head of Taxable Fixed Income Strategy for the Americas, Leslie Falconio. So with that, Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to kick off today's roundtable. Welcome back. Thank you, and, and, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and thank you, Dan. Um, just as a reminder, you know, our team is doing a roundtable every other month, and the last roundtable we did actually was a very good success, but it's interesting to see how much, you know, the market has shifted since then, particularly in the past couple weeks. And before I go to um, our experts, I just want to just give a quick overview in terms of, you know, what we're seeing. I mean, we all know some of the idiosyncratic risk which is going on in terms of, you know, the banking environment right now. But prior to that and during this time, I really do want to highlight a few things. One of the things that we've learned, I think, for the past couple of weeks is the fact that, you know, these, the environment, you know, has, has pretty much, I would say, ignored the potential of a liquidity drain. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've had a Fed, and this is a year anniversary that the Fed has gone from almost zero to nearly 500 basis points in a year. And as as investors and, you know, both street and, uh, you know, market participants have really scratched their head as to wonder why this large rise in interest rates really hasn't been the headwind to the consumer that one would anticipate as we continue to see, you know, a very fluid labor market, as we continue to see inflation really, although declining, still stay at levels that have made the Fed uncomfortable. Well, while we've been, you know, really looking at this consumer, you know, we we have sort of lost sight of the magnitude of the liquidity drain that we've seen over the past year, given the aggressive tightening. And because of this, what we're seeing in the second note is that when we entered 2023, you know, the expectation was that volatility, you know, would decline. And it would, although we believe that it would stay above the average, that change or that delta, you know, when we enter the year, given the historic change that we saw in 2022, would somewhat be mitigated. And what we've noticed in the past couple of weeks is that not only has volatility reached levels since the COVID era, but it's doing so when yields are declining. So our, our, when we think about how we want to you know, present ourselves going forward and one of the benefits that CIO had in terms of their fixed income positioning when we entered into 23 was that our vision was to be in higher quality, you know, given the fact that we wanted to, you know, stay, that we were near the end of the cycle, given the fact we wanted to have that liquidity, we didn't want to go too far in embedded credit, and we also, in, you know, in turn, also increased our interest rate risk around that 395 level. So although we did not anticipate this volatility that we're seeing over the past, you know, week and a half, nor did most other um, uh, participants, we actually were positioned quite well for it. So one of the things we want to talk about today in these different asset classes is not only just to examine really what's occurred or how this has impacted various areas of fixed income, both with more embedded credit and those are higher quality, but also how we might see opportunity further down the line. So, again, I'm going to start off with, with, with Frank Saleo. And, and, Frank, you know, obviously, you know, your sector in particular has been, a, you know, a real spotlight these, these past couple, uh, this past week. 
Um, well, it always is a spotlight, but it's one of these that's particularly in the, in the, in the past week, it's been given the fact that it's tied to some of the, you know, financial volatility that we've seen. But I just want to just first ask you, how do you see your, or what do you think the implications are, um, of the current bank crisis for, crisis for preferred shareholders overall? Thank you, Leslie. Yeah, and that was a great setup, by the way, too. So, um, yeah, let's start talking about specifically the impact of the current crisis in, in the banking sector and the impact on preferreds. Roughly two-thirds of all preferreds in the U.S. preferred market are issued by U.S. banks. So there is an important impact and, and connection to consider. Uh, but it's important to distinguish what's happening today in the bank, banking sector versus prior periods of bank stress. I think uh, some, some of the things happening right now are very reminiscent of the financial crisis of 15 years ago, and maybe it's, it's bringing back some bad memories. But it is important to remember that unlike the financial crisis 15 years ago, in where banks had problem assets like subprime mortgages on the books and things like that, banks today... They do have losses on their balance sheets, but they're due to the duration of the assets. By and large, the losses that the banks are dealing with today, particularly the banks that failed over the weekend, are by and large due to the duration of the assets in the books, not the quality of the assets. In many cases, the losses are coming from long-maturity treasuries, long-maturity government bonds, mortgage-backed securities. So again, high-quality assets. So the real issue is a duration mismatch between those long-duration assets and very short-term liabilities in the form of deposits, demand deposits. So on the one hand, banks have these liabilities in the form of demand deposits. They can be withdrawn at any time, and the banks have assets in the form of bonds, again, high-quality bonds, but bonds that by and large have lost value due to the sudden rise, the historic epic rise in interest rates that we've seen over the past Year. So the Fed, the Federal Reserve, and the Treasury Department, to alleviate some of the pressures here and to try to address that specific problem, have put into place a new program called the Bank Term Funding Program. So banks could borrow against those assets, those high-quality bonds, at their full par value without having to sell them at a loss. So the unrealized losses on those high-quality assets remain unrealized. And this is intended to help restore confidence in bank liquidity and help restore confidence in bank deposits and, and avoid a run on the bank. Okay? That's number one. Number two, the Fed also guaranteed the uninsured deposits, the deposits in excess of $250,000 at the two banks that failed this past weekend. So that suggests somewhat of an implicit guarantee for the broader system uh, insofar as it comes to uh, deposits. So, again, the objective here is to lower the risk of bank runs. And one more point I'd like to make, again, distinguishing this crisis from the one we all experienced 15 years ago. While some smaller banks are struggling with deposit outflows, other larger banks have been reporting in recent days deposit inflows, sizable deposit inflows. So there are beneficiaries among the banks in this environment, particularly the larger uh, larger regional banks and, of course, the big six systemically important banks, and that is, again, different this time around. So let's talk about the first, having said all that. With that as the setup, the key question for preferred holders is 
how does this crisis then impact the dividend risk? Because most people buy preferreds for the coupons. Okay, again, a few things to keep in mind. First and foremost, compared to common stockholders, the preferred shareholders have a senior claim on assets and a senior claim on cash flows. Okay, they're subordinated to all of the bonds in the capital structure, but they have a senior claim on cash flow relative to common stock. So what that means is a bank issuer or any issuer preferred for that matter cannot suspend a preferred dividend and continue to pay a common dividend. On the other hand, a dividend can be suspended on the common stock while continuing to pay on the preferred. And that's something that we have seen in past crises. Okay, the second point I want to make, banking regulations that were enacted after the 2008 financial crisis 15 years ago were designed to fortify the banks, and they mandated higher levels of bank capital. So we're all familiar with this. We've heard this time and time again over the past 15 years. The banks are much better capitalized today than they were heading into the financial crisis 15 years ago. We have the Dodd-Frank Act that was enacted after the crisis. It required that banks should hold more capital relative to their risk-weighted assets than banks did in 2007. Also, the largest banks are subjected to the Fed's annual stress test and the annual comprehensive capital analysis and review, sometimes called CCAR, okay? And these are um, designed to instill confidence in the banking system. They're, they're tests uh, that are done to uh, test the minimum capital and liquidity requirements of these banks. But bringing it back to preferred, these same regulations also require that preferred become more loss-absorbing. So all of the bondholders are on top of the preferreds. So, for example, bank preferreds can no longer pay cumulative dividends. Prior to the crisis, that was a very popular structure. That's no longer the crisis. Instead, they're, they're generally all non-cumulative. That's an important distinction to note. So preferreds are designed to be loss-absorbing capital. So we're, on the one hand, we're less likely to see bank failures, but when we do, the preferred stock, again, is part of loss-absorbing capital. So let me just summarize all of this bottom line. So right now, we don't necessarily anticipate broad-based suspensions of common stock dividends on the U.S. banking sector. So by definition, the risk of a, of a suspension of a preferred stock is, is therefore lower, generally speaking, on a broad, broadly based, uh, broadly speaking. But it is important to note that unlike common stocks, the preferred stocks, the coupon does comprise a larger component to your total return. So coupon suspension is arguably a more damaging event to the preferred shareholders. So Leslie, I know that was a, a long answer, but I wanted to get everything in there and, and, and really uh, it, it wanted to be comprehensive about it. Yeah, no, that was that was great. And, and it, was, it was a really good synopsis. And one of the points that you made, which I think is really important, is that, listen, the, you know, the Fed brought out the bazooka over the weekend, right? And one of the things that differentiates this time around versus, to your point, one of the, one of the other differences versus 2008, and that 2008, they waited a long time. And yet, though, Frank, even though they brought out sort of this, these big guns over the weekend, I'm still seeing yields decline. I'm still seeing vol going up. So with that said, I'm just curious, like, you know, what is your outlook from, for preferreds from here overall? Right. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent point. Excellent question. So clearly, we're going to see more volatility until confidence is uh, fully restored, and that will take some time. And we saw, we saw examples of this this week. We had a big sell-off on Monday. 
We had a big rebound on Tuesday. It was short-lived. We had another you know, sell-off yesterday, and, and uh, today looks like it's going to be somewhat of a difficult day. The market is operating under you know, what's sometimes called the cockroach theory of crisis, right? If there's one problem or issue right now, uh, there may be another one to come. Maybe there's another issue behind the walls that we, we don't see. So it's going to take some time. But I would also point out liquidity. Leslie, you mentioned at the outset the, the importance of liquidity and the sometimes the scarcity of liquidity during these crises. And we see these even in the large sectors, uh, government bonds and, and things like that. That can become a real factor at times like these. And particularly for the preferred market. The U.S. preferred market is a small market. It's only about 20% of the size of the U.S. high-yield market, and and it's a much smaller fraction of the size of the investment-grade corporate market. Uh, I know we'll, we're going to talk about both high-yield and IG corporates in a minute, uh, and a tiny fraction, smaller, smaller fraction of the much larger government bond market. So what's my point? It doesn't take much to whipsaw prices around. Also, ETFs, specializing in the preferred space, they own about 15% of the $25 par preferred market. So outflows from these ETFs and other uh, other vehicles specializing in preferred, when they start to experience outflows, it could uh, lead to forced selling, which can exacerbate selling pressure, particularly in the $25 par market as it relates to ETF outflows. Meanwhile, in the $1,000 par market, there could be times when trading volumes decline and price discovery is limited. So again, over the next few weeks and possibly months, we could continue to see volatility, both downside and upside. We could have some big up days, but then some followed by some big down days as well. Longer term, and I'll just make this quick because I know we're pressed for time here. This could set us up for more sustained gains up until the middle of the week. And it's almost uh, uh, crazy to think about. The greater risk to prefers was higher rates. In the middle of last week, there was talk about the Fed possibly hiking rates to 6%. Okay, um, and, and the 10-year Treasury was over 4, headed higher. The 5-year Treasury was around 4.30. Uh, that's all changed. Okay, the tables have turned. We've done a 180 with respect, with respect to interest rate risk. So to the extent that the larger risk this year was higher interest rates and more Fed tightening, this situation could bring about an end to that process sooner. Also, notably this week, uh, we got CPI and PPI inflation trends have been in, improving, going in the right uh, direction. Obviously, financial conditions are clearly tightening. So importantly, we'll all wait to hear from the Fed and what they have to say next week. But I think a, a, this could be the beginning of a good opportunity in preferreds overall, possibly later in the year. But in the interim, we could see credit premiums rise. We could see credit spreads uh, widen significantly. There is some correlation at times between high yield, and again, we're going to hear from Alina soon, there is at times a correlation between preferreds and a high yield, and when those high yield spreads blow out, there are ripple effects in preferred. So overall, we could continue to see some near-term volatility before leading into a better backdrop in the second half once the dust settles and confidence is restored. Okay. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate that. And I think that, you know, we, we've, we have seen a widening in risk premium. I think the question is, will it continue? And I think to your point, you know, in the short term, we do have a little bit of vulnerability there, but hopefully, you know, when, when you have these kind of headwinds, it leads to better opportunities ahead. 
So, um, you know, with that said, I want to just shift it over to, to Alina now. And Alina, you know, you know that, you know, we had um, high yield as a least preferred position. And you and I have had several discussions on the scratch of your head as to why either high yield spreads compress so much or even just remained, you know, range bound in the face of, you know, a more hawkish Fed or, t- or, or tightening lending standards and such. But I just want to, you know, move to you and, and just ask you in terms of the current environment, when we look at high yield, you know, how do we sort of anticipate, if you will, that this fallout from the current banking situation to impact the sector? Thanks, Leslie. Uh, you're absolutely right. Up until the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, high yield was extremely resilient. And we felt that it was too resilient. And uh, as you mentioned, we had a least preferred on it. Now, the reason it was holding up so well is because, I think, is because yields were high by historical standards. And the economy was holding up well. Well, so, of course, over the past week, spreads widened out by about 120 basis points. Now, while some of this widening was due to rates falling sharply, the majority of the widening really is a reflection of the added risk that we have in the market today. So here's how we think the recent events are likely to impact the high-yield market. First of all, we think that there will be tightening of lending conditions. According to the Fed, the regional banks represent about a quarter of the total assets of the U.S. banking system. So they do matter. And whether the issues at the banks that we saw over the weekend are systemic or idiosyncratic, that remains to be seen. But regardless of that, there is likely to be continued scrutiny at the regional banks and potentially some more deposit leads. Additionally, let's Look at the rating agencies. They downgraded one of the regional banks to high yield from investment grade yesterday, and that's likely to add even more pressures. And then finally, we expect that there's going to be increased regulation. So all of this put together is likely to cause tighter financial conditions and tighter lending standards. And then secondly, we expect that these tighter lending conditions will be felt by high-yield companies. We think it means more difficulty getting access to capital, potentially more expensive capital, and it increases the risk of a recession. Now, if we look at default rates and high yield, they have been rising steadily, but are still very low by historical standards. Default rates dropped in June of last year at sub 1%. They have risen steadily since, and they now stand at around 2%. Now, we think that the combination of the economic slowdown, the higher probability of a recession, and more difficult access to capital are likely to cause default rates to keep rising over the remainder of the year. I mean, so with that said, I mean, when we think about there's so many aspects, as you know, and and you cover a lot within the high-yield sector. So, But when we think about that, within the sector in and of itself, you know, when, when we do believe there will be a time, you know, given this fact that spreads have widened now, we're seeing that 500 handle again. And, you know, and, you know, most likely, you know, as you mentioned, are, you know, subject to a bit of vulnerability in the short term. But, you know, how, within that, you know, how would we sort of be positioned? How should we position today within that? And how do you think about it going forward? We are maintaining high yield at least preferred overall. Although I think it is important to acknowledge that now that high yield is 120 basis points wider and yields are very wide, where 
just outside of 9% now. The valuation in high yield looks more attractive today than it has so far this year. But we think it makes sense to be patient and to see how the economic environment unfolds for the time being. Now, for those investors that want to take a look at high yield, we think that higher quality is where you will find the best risk reward. Double Bs, their spreads recently widened out to 367 basis points. This is close to October levels of last year, and it's about 70 basis points wider than the historic 10-year average if we exclude the COVID peak. So within the Double Bs, there are numerous high-quality companies. They have strong balance sheets, sound business models. They will be able to withstand economic volatility. And while we think it's too early to call a bottom in high yield, we think investors that want to look into it should start with a high-quality double B credits that have widened out due to the recent market volatility. Thank you, Alina. I appreciate that. And I want to just, you know, you ended with such a great thing, and that's market volatility. And the reason why I say that is, as we all know, you know, when we think about volatility within the marketplace, those sectors that are actually higher quality are really impacted first. And the reason why that is, those higher qualities have a tendency to either be marked to market first or they're a little, they're a little bit more, they have a little more liquidity to them versus, say, something with really high embedded credit. So when, when volatility goes up, sometimes a higher quality, you know, could get sort of hit first. And we, and we saw this in 2022 as well, and we'll see this partly this year. So that brings me to, you know, the muni side. And, you know, and Kathleen, I really want to just segue over to you, particularly given the volatility that we've seen recently and the volatility, you know, you know, prior to what we're seeing in terms of this, the situation with the, with the banking system, but, but more importantly, let's focus on just the, the recent movements and how sort of this sort of uh, this this recent you know crisis of confidence, as I know people like to say, you know, has impacted the muni side of the business. Uh, sure, Leslie. I mean, the um, the net effect of this current crisis is really twofold on the municipal bond market. I mean, first, in terms of performance, you know, munis are, are actually benefiting from that sharp flight to quality that we're seeing in the U.S. Treasury securities market. Um, as a point of reference, the muni sector as a whole is up by over 1% in the space of only one week. Um, so as you know, that's a big rally for munis. Uh, Longer-dated munis witnessed the largest gains across the curve of almost 2%, again, in the space of just that one week. Um, in the time frame leading up to the closure of Silicon Valley Bank and subsequent Fed intervention, you may recall that munis were very rich versus uh, taxable debt, specifically at the front part of the curve through and including the 10-year spot, and the longer data bonds were a bit cheaper. So following the volatility that you just mentioned over the past week and that very sharp rally in U.S. Treasury securities, tax-exempt munis have now become more attractive across the yield curve on a relative basis. So all across the yield curve on a tax-adjusted basis, they're more attractive. Second, um, I'd say uh, from a credit perspective, I mean, municipal bonds are better insulated from the volatility surrounding market disruptions. Um, state and local government banking deposits are actually fully collateralized, and the revenues necessary for daily operations are derived from various forms of taxation or user fees on essential services. That said, we have re received a few questions about concerns that recent bank failures could lead to some selling pressures in munis. As you know, banks are significant owners of, of municipal bonds, thus those concerns can't be dismissed. 
But, I mean, at this stage, you know, while there are significant unrealized losses in available sale and health and maturity securities portfolios across the banking industry, the pressure to sell these securities and realize the losses appears unique to a few institutions for now. I mean, I think Frank gave a very nice overview of the Fed's backstop program and the differences between this banking crisis and the financial crisis in 2008. For Muni specifically, um, just to give you a little bit of uh, color there, according to some recent market reports, Silicon Valley Bank did already sell a portion of its $7.4 million uh, Muni holdings in the early part of the first quarter, and as far as we know, Signature has very little exposure. Thus, we think the impact of Muni liquidations by the failed banks appears muted, at least at this time. Thank you, Kathleen. I appreciate it. So when, when we think about sort of the volatility that we've seen now, and I'm going to, you know, you know, just kind of ask you a question that I've asked you really. It's been a common theme and, and a very important one um, with that said, particularly given what we're seeing in the markets today. You know, how should, how should Muni investors be positioned overall? Uh, sure, Leslie. I mean, what's interesting is despite all these new developments, we haven't changed our stance on credit quality positioning. You know, with recessionary risk still representing headwinds to keep tabs on, we continue to favor investment-grade munis in higher-quality sectors rather than high-yield munis. State governments, electric utilities, and water and sewer debt are among the best examples of muni sectors that should exhibit credit resilience. By contrast, the not-for-profit healthcare and private higher ed sectors are more vulnerable to an economic downturn in our view. With respect to the curve, you know, until recently, as I've mentioned, uh, you know, we were looking at a cross-asset barbell portfolio which favored shorter treasuries and longer-dated munis, um, but that rapid decline that we saw in short-term treasury yields just this week has altered that calculus. So now um, we, we actually see opportunities in short-term munis as well as long-dated munis on a tax-adjusted basis. And finally, I would just say that um, the pace of new issue supplies finally picked up this month, consistent with seasonal trends. So we are encouraging investors to seek bonds to meet specific investment mandates. Now that the opportunity set has expanded, uh, for example, we saw some large New York-based issuers in the market this week. Thanks, Kathleen. I appreciate that. And now, you know, you know, Barry, over to you because you know this, the, the, the sector in terms of investment corporate is something that we have had a most preferred on um, since you know going back to October. You know, it's well for the overall positioning of the portfolio, and the same with the higher quality type of aspect of the sector. But I have to, but I have to sort of ask you, particularly with um, what we're seeing to, in today's market. You know, so again, how is sort of like the current state of the IG? You know developed over the past, you know, particularly over the past week or so, and, what do you, and how is the current affecting IG going forward? Yeah, so the investor-grade asset class, uh, you know, spreads have widened quite uh, substantially uh, in March. They're wider by 34 basis points, and the IG index uh, now stands at a level of about 164 basis points, and, and that's actually, um, you know, on more of the attractive side relative to the last 10 years in terms of a, of, a, of a credit spread basis. Now, if you're looking at the total return, uh, month-to-date is actually up 1%. And, you know, why is that? And, and it's because uh, the flight to quality and, and the uh, high-quality nature of investment-grade corporates uh, that have, um, you know, provided that offset to the, the significant credit spread um, widening. And, you know, it's a little bit um, surprising, I guess, when you think about that, you know, kind of the root cause of this volatility 
uh, were was in U.S. regional banks and, and investment grade rated banks. So that you know, this is actually the sector you know where this uh, the stress emanated from. Um, but yet, from a um, you know performance point of view, it's it really showcased the qualities uh, that led us to, to favor investment grade, um, you know, along the way, which, which was just that we thought that, you know, yields were, um, were high over 5% and, and they remain that way. Um, even though spreads had been on the tighter end of the spectrum, we thought if they widened out, you would get that buffer, you know, and that's exactly how, uh, how things played out uh, over the past, uh, you know, week or so. Thank you, Barry. So, when we think about this overall, and this and going forward, how how would we how would you position in terms of of, of IG right now? Yeah. So, when, in terms of positioning, again, we are most preferred on the asset class as a whole. Uh, we think its return properties, you know, are still attractive um, overall. I'd say if you dig down to first um, curve positioning. You know, we've had this uh, barbell approach where we liked uh, maturities on the very short end, like one to three year, as well as more intermediate, like seven year. You know, we do continue to be positioned that way. Um, on the short end of the curve, uh, the, the investment grade yield curve is very flat. So the yield uh, is about 5.4% really across uh, maturities. And, you know, that short end really does provide you that, that income without too much uh, price sensitivity. And, you know, with a yield of 5.4% in a duration that's 1.8 years, in order to um, suffer a, a total return loss on that short end, you know, you'd have to see yields rise over 100 basis points, um, which would view to be, uh, you know, something that would happen more in a risk scenario. So we think that short end retains, you know, its carry uh, properties um, that, uh, that investors should, um, you know, find appealing. And then when it comes to intermediate maturities, you know, obviously we've had this huge flight to quality in treasuries. Um, again, the, the decline in yield for investment-grade corporates uh, hasn't been um, nearly as much as we've seen in treasuries because of that spread widening. So, you know, we still like that that intermediate area. Um, I'd say, you know, tactically the timing is difficult. We, we, we could see some uh, better entry points for sure, but I think, you know, that intermediate duration over the long term you know, should be um, a good place uh, to be from a total return standpoint, you know, with thinking about a horizon that spans to the end of the year. And then um, finally, just in terms of uh, credit ratings, so, you know, spreads have widened across the board, whether it's triple B corporates as well as single A's. And, you know, normally in this type of environment where risk gets priced into the marketplace, you would see triple B's widen out quite a bit more than single A's. In this case, I think the um, financial sector concentration of single A's um, has, uh, you know, caused really, again, the single A's to widen, you know, maybe more so than they'd be expected to relative to their lower-rated counterparts. So with credit ratings, I, I think um, as it relates to that single A area, there, there, you know, there are opportunities, certainly in, in non-banks that have widened in sympathy, you know, some more non-cyclical industrial type companies uh, where you can, you know, find attractive um, yields on those types of issues. And, and then as it relates to the, the bank sector, which is, you know, a significant part of the investment grade market, you know, its sector weighting is about 25%. But, about 18% of that are the globally systemically important banks, uh, both from the U.S. and non-U.S. And uh, 
we're, we're likely to see that, that the U.S. globally systemically important banks will issue new supply to the marketplace, um, you know, either, you know, later this quarter or, you know, pretty soon. They've been largely absent from the marketplace um, so far this year. You know, that could present an opportunity, you know, for those, for the largest and most highly regulated, you know, banks in the U.S. once that supply comes um, and, and provide, you know, more attractive spreads uh, in, in that sector as well. Great, Brett. Thank you. And, and you know, I, and I do think, particularly when it came to come to that intermediate part of the curve, that we had, you know, that we did add on to, um, you know, with the expectation that, you know, yields were rising a bit too much. That you know, corporates again, you know, when we think about this, when, when everyone hears is really the, the common theme has been a bit of spread winding. But as we all know, when you're in an environment where volatility shoots up to levels that we haven't seen since the COVID era, and, and you're during a time where we have this kind of uncertainty. You know, spreads are going to widen, but spread widening doesn't impact cash flows. Defaults impact cash flows. So one of the reasons why we sort of we have, we've kept this higher quality, and why we like keeping this higher quality, is because we're still going to go through a time period where we still have a lot of unknowns going forward. Positioning wise, again, we've increased our interest rate risk. I think at a, at a very good time. You know, and again, we, now that we're facing what's happening, you know, with this. You know, you know, this banking situation currently, we would do have to focus on what the economy is going to do in the second half of the year. And even regardless of what's happened in the past, you know, two weeks, given the, given the headwinds, you know, from the Fed moving up so aggressively and, you know, seeing sort of like, you know, corporate earnings and our equity call being a little bit, um, on the, uh, what I would call the more negative side, course is going to slow in the second half of the year. So this is only one part of, I think, the puzzle in terms of how we, how we want to be positioned going forward. But again, we're always looking for relative value opportunities, um, and hopefully we will position ourselves correctly. But given what we've seen so far, you know, within the fixed income portfolio, you know, I think we were, we were you know, well positioned for this as best as we could be. And again, I appreciate everyone's time, and we'll be on again um, in May. And I'm sure, given the market volatility, we'll be talking about complete Completely something different, but thanks everyone who's joined, and I appreciate the time. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 